0: Video games are big business Pulling in over 37 billion dollars Per year in domestic sales So why can't we make A good movie based on one
1: In the late 1600s The town of Salem, Massachusetts Dissolved into total hysteria And violence during the famous Salem witch trials But what actually caused this panic in the first place
0: Acclaimed chef David Ruggiero had it all Published cookbooks a show on the Food Network, and a sinister secret. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. Okay, Jay, we are both big movie fans. So what's the worst movie that you have ever seen? That's tough, but I think
1: pretty definitively, it's probably the 1997 movie Batman and Robin. Do you remember the the cast of characters in that movie? That's
0: the one where uh, Batman had nipples on the suit, right? Yeah,
1: like very clearly (laughs) defined (laughs) nipples.
0: Was that Clooney? (laughs) Was that when Clooney was Batman? Uh,
1: Yes, that was Clooney. And uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was famously uh, Mr. Freeze.
0: Arnold Schwarzenegger had the incredible quote, I like everyone, (laughs) chill!
1: (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't get much worse than that.
0: (laughs) Well, Jay, for me, now let me say I am a review hound, so I try to avoid every bad movie that I possibly can. But for me, it very well might be the 1993 film Super Mario Brothers, Have you seen Super Mario Brothers?
1: Yes, that movie is terrifying.
0: Now, to be fair, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but I seem to remember that it checks the two B-boxes, bad and boring. (laughs) The site Rotten Tomatoes, Jay, which is a site that we reference a lot on this show, that collects all of the movie critic submitted reviews for every movie and then gives them an overall score of 1 to 100, with 60% being the cutoff for a fresh rating, meaning the movie is recommended, and everything else under 60 being labeled as rotten. Rotten Tomatoes gave Super Mario Bros. a 28%, which is very, very rotten. That's being generous. <laughs> Super Mario Brothers, though, for all of its flaws, Jay, was actually revolutionary. It was the first wide-release theatrical film to be completely based on a video game. But Jay, you see, here's the thing. While plenty of great movies, both from a critical review standpoint or a box office profitability standpoint, have been released based on books, movies based on video games are historically awful. And that's not an opinion, my friend. It's fact. Since the famous Mario Brothers release in 1993, get this, the average Rotten Tomatoes score for a film based on a video game is a pitiful 27%. And it's happened so many times now that it almost feels like a curse. So Jay, why? Why can't Hollywood figure out how to turn a video game, typically something beloved by so many, into a decent movie? Well, it comes down to really two things. First... The video games that are being adapted don't really have great stories to tell. That's not what makes them so popular. Let's look at Mario Brothers again. The movie, which had a massively big budget in 1993 of nearly $50 million, is basically the story of the video game. It's about two brothers who are plumbers adventuring (laughs) through a fictional mushroom kingdom to save a princess from a fire-breathing turtle-like dragon creature. But that classic story wasn't really why people loved and still do love the game. They liked the gameplay. There is empowerment with video games. Christina Garnett, a digital strategist, told Newsy, You're able to pick your own adventure and exist in these really large, immersive environments. Jay, you literally step into the character's shoes. Saving Princess Toadstool is your mission just as much as it is Mario's. How about other movie adaptions that bombed, like Tomb Raider, Doom, or Assassin's Creed? I'd argue the source material really is the big problem, says Paul Tassy, senior contributor at Forbes. A game like Tomb Raider is great because of its combat mechanics, climbing, and puzzle solving. But in that 15-hour game, you only have, what, maybe 45 minutes of actual story? The end result without the gameplay is something that really doesn't feel terribly interesting. And Jay... Second and last, the the best video game movies historically have been movies about the game. So think about movies like the well-reviewed Wreck-It Ralph or even the Robin Williams beloved classic Jumanji. These movies use the concept of the game to tell an interesting story. The video game or board game when it comes to Jumanji just happened to be a part of that story. There isn't a box to neatly fit the movie script into. Now, Jay, the rise of streaming platforms over the past few years may be the answer to this by changing the approach. Perhaps a video game can best be showcased as a TV show rather than a movie. Current examples would be the Netflix shows The Witcher and Arcane, both based on video games rather than specifically a movie version of a video game. Both of these shows have been successful by focusing on telling a good story Versus being a video game adaption. And Jay, that's the key. The story matters so much. Now, not all video game movies were bombs. Thrillist put out a list of a few video game movies that are worth your time. And on it are both Mortal Kombat movies, the 1995 one because it was so bad, and the more recent <laughs> one because it was so good. The cartoon Detective Pikachu, featuring the voice talents of Ryan Reynolds, and a new movie series based on a video game, Sonic the Hedgehog, both the first one and Sonic the Hedgehog 2, which just recently hit theaters. Jay, both of those were very well-reviewed, and that wasn't all. They actually were box office smash hits. The first Sonic the Hedgehog made over $150 million at the box office. I think
1: another issue too is just, you'd think that having a built-in fan base would be an advantage, but I think it can kind of play against people making these movies because people kind of come in with expectations of kind of what they want the character to be or the story to be or kind of how they want it to go uh like the most recent uh one that i'm thinking of is that movie uncharted that had you know tom holland and mark Wahlberg. these are like two huge hollywood stars the movie didn't do that great and uh but it's got a huge following as a video game so you'd think all those people would go to the movie theaters but i think it kind of worked against them they kind of expected like well this tom holland doesn't play in the right way or the story doesn't go like it does in the video game and it just kind of creates all kinds of other problems So, Dave, uh, what do you know about witches?
0: Not a ton, but when I was a kid, and this is true of really most people in my generation, we didn't have DVDs yet. We had VHS tapes. And so we would watch the same VHS tapes over and over and over and over that we rented from America's Superstore Blockbuster. And one of my favorite rentals was the Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen uh, acclaimed film Double Double Toil and Trouble. So that's really my experience with
1: witches. So you called the movie acclaimed? I don't know. uh...
0: I'll look up its... uh, its (laughs)
1: Well, continue. we're going to talk about the Salem Witch Trials, uh, but more specifically, we're going to talk about how they started uh, because historians are really divided. And I think there's some really interesting theories here to explore. So, Dave, the Salem Witch Trials was this time of craziness in history where people in the town of Salem, Massachusetts, started accusing each other of witchcraft. And the trials really kicked off in the colonial town right around 1692 and lasted on and off over a year. And by the time the hysteria had settled down, over 200 people had been accused of practicing witchcraft and 20 had actually been executed. And ever since, historians haven't really been able to nail down a sure cause of the hysteria, but there's been some really interesting theories that we're going to discuss. Now, before we do that, though, Dave, it's important to note that the idea of witch trials weren't really a thing isolated to just Salem, Massachusetts. Uh, Witch trials were very common throughout Europe, especially after the Protestant Reformation Information, which sort of upset the power of the Catholic Church. But this is without a doubt the biggest single instance of a set of witch trials running through a small town on what is now American soil. And what's fascinating about the event aren't just the trials themselves either, it's the speed at which life just sort of suddenly returned to normal after the panic died down. So what caused this mass hysteria in the first place? To understand the time, it's important to first understand that this was a time of underlying Anxiety in Puritan society. Puritans had been exposed to frequent wars with Native American tribes, and this led to raids and violence that continued. This sort of stress can do a couple things. One, it can give people post traumatic stress disorder, which may explain some of the strange emotional outbursts of the accused women that was used as evidence that they were somehow possessed. The failure of the Puritans to win wars against the natives may have also contributed to the perceived existence of women. Witches, sort of a religious explanation as to why the Puritans were failing to win these conflicts. As in, if we can root out the demonic forces in our community, maybe that would give us the advantage we needed to conquer the frontier. Another theory, Dave, that was put forth by Emily Oster at Harvard in 2004, which I think is really interesting, is that the Salem witch trials and an increase in witch trials in Europe coincided with a miniature ice age that was affecting yearly temperatures around the globe. Lower temperatures meant more crop failure, and more crop failure meant more strained societies. When societies are anxious, people within society begin to look for scapegoats to explain away the stress. This coincides with the belief that witches could control the weather, and oftentimes hard seasons were seen as having a supernatural cause instead of a scientific one. And this isn't exactly unprecedented throughout history either. Many populations of people have been blamed and persecuted for things that have perfectly natural explanations like disease or bad weather. Until the science comes along to explain why something bad happens, many times people explain it away with the scapegoat. Now, my favorite theory, though, and just because it's the most out there, it started gaining some traction during the 1970s after it was introduced by Linda Caporeal, And that is that the Salem witch trials were caused by hallucinogenic fungi. Under the right conditions, the fungus ergot can grow on rye and wheat crops, which obviously would have been staple crops in Puritan society. And when ingested, ergot can cause hallucinations and is sometimes even used today to create LSD. Many of the reported symptoms of the supposedly bewitched girls match up with the symptoms of ergot poisoning. And maybe this could also explain witness testimony in which witnesses accused those on trial of performing supernatural acts. Maybe they were all just hallucinating in Salem. Now, although the conditions were just right for ergot to grow in Salem in 1692, this theory is obviously really controversial, and there's really no way to ultimately prove it right or wrong. Most people who study this sort of thing will tell you that the real explanation is probably less exciting, and the Salem witch trials are just good examples of how human judgment can be compromised under hysteria and the power of group dynamics. Psychologists have long proven that people tend to lose their identity when they're a part of a group or a mob, and they lose their sense of individuality. So this combined with the fact that fear tends to cause humans to lose their sense of empathy. The Salem Witch Trials converged a lot of factors at once. Fear of the unknown, religious panic, a society that believed that their problems could be traced back to some sort of moral failure, and then on top of that, a society that had very specific roles laid out for women. Although a couple men were executed during the trials, the vast majority of the victims were young women. Oftentimes, these were women who did not fit the typical mold of what the Puritans believed a woman should be. Many were unmarried or independent. Witnesses from within the society felt pressure to back up each other's accounts for the good of the group and made any piece of evidence stick at all costs. On top of this, judges were not bound by legal precedent either and often guided by religious frames of reference and allowed all sorts of wild evidence to convict victims today, the witch trials, they stand as a powerful story, a warning about the dangers of mob mentality, of scapegoating, and of the sinister effects of being the part of a group, especially a group that's driven
0: by fear. So Double Double Toil and Trouble does not have a uh, enough critic reviews to have a rating on Rotten Tomatoes, but it does have audience reviews. So if you listened to episode oh, 55, boy, okay, so episode 55... We discussed Amazon reviews and how they, they really can't be trusted. I feel the same way about this, because the audience gives Double Double Toilet Trouble a 55%, but it's reviews like this. Three and a half stars from Taryn. Haven't seen it since I was little, but remember liking it. Okay, so she came on and reviewed it. <laughs> Hadn't seen it in years. Too
1: much hindsight bias. You can't trust Get Taran. out of here. Get out of here, Terran S. Also, uh, I did say that most of the victims uh, of the Salem Witch Trials were women, but across, as I was researching for this uh, segment, I did find one man that was accused of wizardry who was executed during the Salem Witch Trials, and he was executed by a method called pressing. And pressing is where they set you down on the ground, and then they gradually lay heavy stones on top of you until you oh die.
0: Oh, I think we now know the a new worst way to die. What if it was like little rocks too? Like they started. With <laughs> it takes them like
1: six days.
0: Yeah, o- over the course of. Weeks. He's like,
1: just kill me. I'm just <laughs> uncomfortable.
0: Jay, isn't it interesting how life never really goes how you think it will? I mean, good or bad, life is unpredictable. In fact, I've heard it said before that for this very reason. The true key to happiness in life might be the ability to just simply stay curious. Jay, what is something in your life that has just really shocked you? Something that surprised you? You know, I think the only time I've really
1: been rendered just truly totally speechless was whenever my wife and i found out that we were having twins instead of just yeah. one baby uh because in that moment it was just such like a overwhelming sort of doubling of everything and you're
0: worried about what if i like one more than the other <laughs> and there's just all these issues but but jay whether it's the story of like a i don't know a charismatic serial killer someone going from community contributor to monster or you find out you're having twins Life has a way of constantly surprising us and keeping us on our toes. We close this week discussing someone who surprised a lot of people. You see, acclaimed chef David Ruggiero was one of the most sought-after and popular chefs in the world in the 1990s. Honored by legendary wine connoisseur Robert Mandavi as the National Rising Star Chef of the Year in 1995, Ruggiero wrote best-selling cookbooks, had cooking shows on both PBS and the Food Network. But Jay Ruggiero also had something else, a sinister secret. David Ruggiero honed his culinary skills in France, training as a young man at several of the country's most elite restaurants. His decades-long career in the kitchen was highlighted by cooking for presidents and international royalty. But David Ruggiero, whose actual name is Sabatino Antonino Gambino, how about that, (laughs) had another side to him. While he was David Ruggiero by day, Jay, he was Sabatino Gambino by night. And Sabatino was an active member of the Gambino mob syndicate. I was living two lives, Ruggiero told Vanity Fair. I did things when I was pushed that I'm not proud of, but I didn't want to be a criminal. I really loved being a chef. Jay, but wanted or not, Rogerio, and that's what I'll call him for the rest of this segment, was a criminal. His father, Severio Gambino, was the cousin of Carlo Gambino, the infamous New York mob boss of the bosses who ruled the legendary five mob families of New York in the 1960s and 1970s. From an early age, Rogerio was groomed for the family business. In 1977, his father took him to Italy right before the beginning of high school, and Rogerio was officially inducted into the mob. But even before that, he had lived the mob life. At the age of only 11, he watched an older mob member kill a man, someone the mob claimed to be a federal informant, and Ruggiero helped clean up the crime scene. He would later admit to being more closely involved in more murders as he got older. Still, he somehow managed a somewhat normal and clean existence during the day as a chef. While Rogerio was working his way through the culinary world, he was earning about $50,000 per year on the side. That's equivalent to about $230,000 today from dealing drugs. Almost by mistake, though, Che, he was slowly turning into a world-class chef. And as with most mob movies that eerily mirror the real life of a crime family... Rogerio was always one step away from dying at the hands of another mob member. In fact, he credits the development of his cooking skills as to what ultimately spared his life. Because mob bosses love to eat. What wise guys do most of the time is talk about food, Rogerio told Vanity Fair. And it was his culinary prowess that helped keep him on the good side of notorious mobsters like the infamous John Gotti. Even throwing a 50th birthday party for Gotti at one of his restaurants. That meal, believe it or not, would actually end up being the last birthday meal as a free man for Gotti, who would go on to be arrested and ultimately die in prison. Strangely enough, though, Jay, while Rogerio somehow managed to keep his double life a secret, it was credit card fraud that ultimately took him down in July of 1998. Rogerio got five years probation and ordered to pay $100,000 in restitution. Not only did the arrest cost him his career, including all five of his restaurants, it also cost him his respect from the mob. Jay, it would be six years later, in June of 2014, that Rogerio would finally admit to what and who he had been. His son, an aspiring mobster himself, died of an accidental overdose. And it was after certain members of the crime family that had been training his son elected not to make any attempt to attend the funeral, that Rogerio had finally had enough. And Jay, while telling his story, ultimately means selling out the mob, Rogerio's ready for whatever may come his way. I'll let the chips fall where they may, he told Vanity Fair. After I lost my son, I knew that this had to end with me. Jay, ultimately the mob cost him the two things that really gave him joy in life, cooking and his children. I wouldn't have wished my life on anyone, he said. I hate to sleep. The nights are very long and filled with nightmares.
1: Yeah, we must be going through something this week. You know, we started talking about bad movies. Gosh, we what's wrong we with journeyed this? through the Salem Witches. witch trials, talking about all these wrongful the deaths Olsen twins. and then we ended talking about a man who lost everything and what is it with these guys always getting arrested for things that like don't really matter like al capone for instance yeah. you know he was this like massive like drug and alcohol runner during prohibition facilitated all these murders and he gets thrown in jail for tax fraud come on
0: now yeah it's like the murder people but yet they get arrested for speeding tickets.
1: Speaking of, didn't you uh, get, in a, get in some hot water recently for speeding? Well, if
0: you're referring to what we talked about the other day, that was not recent. That was a couple of years ago. I'm just still salty about it. So a cop pulled me over a few years ago for changing the Spotify song on my phone and gave me a ticket for so, being on my cell phone. Which is
1: against the law, by the way. Yeah, but out
0: there like driving <laughs> 150 miles an hour, robbing yeah, so, people, selling drugs. So and I did a I am, bad thing, changing but the song. people out
1: there doing worse things than me. Yeah. You could be out Uh, catching real criminals
0: He could have been I'm concerned about the community If this is how we're (laughs) going to spend our time And that's it Thanks for listening to this week's episode Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute On Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast platform Check us out, we're on social We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram And you can always say what up at our website CommuteThePodcast.com Music for commute is provided by my main man Jason Sammons. For Jason and I'm Dave Trump. We'll see you next week.